James M. Fenelon is a historian and former paratrooper whose last book was Four Hours of Fury, a story on an airborne division at the Rhine River in March 1945. His new book is Angels Against the Sun, a World War II saga of grunts, grit, and brotherhood, which takes us to the Pacific Theater in World War II. Welcome. Welcome, Mr. Fenelon. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate the invitation. Uh, just uh, let, let, let's open with a big, broad question, uh, setting the context. What was the 11th Airborne Division? Sure. So I think, you know, a lot of your listeners and yourself may be familiar with Band of Brothers, um, which is kind of a lot of uh, people's gateway into World War II history. So that was about the 101st Airborne Division, which went to Europe. Uh, the United States had five airborne divisions in World War II. Um, the 11th Airborne Division was the only one that they sent to the Pacific at the time. And so the Angels was their nickname, um, and that was uh, their, so the, the book is the story of their campaign um, in the Philippine Islands. Uh, how did airborne units in general typically operate in battle plans? At one point you call them shock troops. What, what role do they play? It's a great question because I think it has a direct bearing on kind of how things unfolded for the 11th during their time in, in the Philippine campaign. So initially, airborne divisions were envisioned as being um, shock troops, meaning that they would jump in or, you know, use gliders to land in front of advancing ground forces to seize specific objectives such as bridges or airfields, um, things of that nature. They, they would then be quickly um, linked up with those advancing ground elements, pulled out of the front lines, um, and then refitted and reconstituted for their next um, airborne mission. Now, the way things kind of unfolded during World War II, um, it didn't quite work out that way. So the initially, the, uh, the beginning stages of an airborne operation very much matched that doctrine. But what happened was, due to the necessities of, of combat, those airborne divisions often found themselves in the front lines a lot longer than originally envisioned. Um, they were known for their aggressive fighting style, so ground commanders liked having them around on their front lines because of their uh, aggressive stature in combat. And then when you look at the 11th over in the Pacific Theater, in the Philippines specifically, they were used more as light infantry. And they certainly use their airborne capability, meaning the ability to drop um, men and materiel by parachute. They use that to their advantage um, on a smaller scale than they did in Europe, but certainly as an interesting way to kind of maintain the momentum of their campaign, uh, dropping men and supplies into the jungle as they started pushing their way across the island of Leyte. You begin with training camp for this group uh, coming in in 1944. The training for this group begins. Uh, how does how does airborne training? Well, no, maybe I'll ask this. Uh, you bring up certain rivalries that 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 set in in training camp with other 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 parts of the military. How do airborne soldiers see themselves relative to other other units, other groups? That's a great question, Mark, because I think it kind of sets the tone for, you know, the, the airborne culture, if you will. I think large, you know, the idea of parachuting behind enemy lines, I think that commanders of those parachute units early on very much wanted to embrace this idea of rugged individualism. So paratroopers were 
were recognizing that they, when they landed behind enemy lines, they were inherently going to be surrounded by the enemy for a period of time. They weren't necessarily going to land with their command structure in place, right? So if you think about uh, landing on a beach or, or pushing your way across on a ground campaign, those units are largely intact, meaning that the officers are present at the scene of action, um, leadership is present, so you can have a, a reasonable expectation that orders are going to be given and that and that everybody's going to follow those orders. Well, when you're landing in the dark behind enemy lines, scattered with parachutes, you really have to rely on the individual initiative of each trooper who's landed to kind of, you know, carpe diem, if you will, and seize their objectives without a lot of um, supervision initially, right, until things get organized. And so um, parachute units in particular very much embraced this sense of rugged individualism. They were often uh, went through tougher training at the time that was much more physically demanding than some of the other um, regular infantry units. And so they kind of developed um, in one way could to describe as an attitude problem or an ego <laughs> associated with kind of their uh, esprit de corps. Right. One of the great things about your book is, is you give so many concrete details on the ground daily life, things people wouldn't really be uh, aware of. For instance, you know, specific uh, issues of uniform. During training camp, what is this thing about highly polished boots that comes up? Yeah, so one of the uh, the status symbols, if you will, of, of paratroopers, both in World War II and now, frankly, are their very uniquely designed jump boots. And so, you know, at the time during World War II, um, most most of the army was issued um, kind of high top leather boots, if you will, that kind of came up just to the ankle, and they would use then canvas leggings um, for further support. Well, that just wasn't sufficient for parachute operations, right? Where guys are jumping out of airplanes, um, crashing into the ground, they wanted something that offered a little bit more support to prevent broken ankles. So they um, they designed and were issued these very unique brown. Um, jump boots. And so they were authorized to wear them as part of their dress uniform. They would tuck their pants into the tops of those boots so that the full boot would be shown off while they were um, off base and on leave and things like that. And it kind of became a status symbol for them because they were the only soldiers at the time that were wearing those boots. And so as a, as a point of pride that they, um, they shined them up as high as they could. And it was um, at one point in the division's history where it had become such an issue that the commanding officer of the 11th Airborne General Swing elected to um, take away that privilege from his paratroopers, so to speak, because he viewed um, their esprit de corps as more of a problem than uh, a benefit from his perspective. And so it kind of started this uh, inadvertent interdivision rivalry between the guys who were constantly coming up with creative ways to get their boots back. Yeah. One thing that might have you know, contributed to them setting themselves apart is, would you describe training camp? People died in these uh, in these training exercises, and I, I I I I'll move on, but I'll just I'll just lay that out for for our readers of of the book. Training camp could be complicated, and uh, people are jumping out of airplanes. People are flying airplanes. Things can go wrong, uh, even even in the you know there's no enemy. Uh, around. Things can happen. Anyway, the training camp 
they leave the South. They, you know, it's, it's what, 110 degrees, uh, you know, at night uh, sometimes in the barracks. But they crossed the Pacific. They had no idea where they were going, did they? I mean, what were they thinking as they were as they were traveling? That's right, Mark. And just to just to hover on that last point you brought up, because I think it's it's great insight. You know, these these paratroopers, again, what's kind of contributed to their aggressive spirit was this notion that, hey, you know, we're risking our lives just to get to work. Like so even before the battle has started, we've already kind of put our put our lives on the line, so to speak. So that that also contributed to kind of their their esprit de corps and them viewing themselves as a, as a step above. But to your point, very few people in the division realized that they were heading to the Pacific Theater. Certainly, uh, General Swing and his immediate staff knew that they were deploying to the Pacific. But the vast majority of the men in the unit didn't realize where they were going until they were um, on board their troop trains heading out of Louisiana. And they kind of had some running bets as to whether or not the train was eventually going to turn right or turn left, meaning go east or west. And of course, the train turned uh, left, going west towards California, which revealed to the men in the division for the first time that they were actually heading to California, where they would board ships and then sail into the Pacific Theater. And what's what's interesting, I'll just add a quick comment onto that. Um, you know, I think in hindsight, we all look back, and 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 maybe you know, you and your friends have had had that conversation where, well, well, would you rather have fought in the Pacific or in Europe or you know, would you, would you prefer, the, you know, the Battle of the Bulge or, or the sweltering jungle? You know, those kinds of conversations as we look back at history. And I was, I was surprised to learn how many of the veterans of the 11th Airborne Division were uh, quite open to the idea of going to the Pacific. And I had made some of my own assumptions incorrectly and had those, had those um, corrected as I went through. But, you know, it's important to remember, I think, that most of these guys, a lot of these guys had enlisted in the Army specifically as a response to uh, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. And so them being sent to the Pacific was kind of exactly fulfilling um, the obligation that they had taken upon themselves when they enlisted. The first action in November 1944 is at Leyte. Uh, I should just give us an overview. What happened there? They, they, they arrived 30 days after the initial invasion. I mean, it's a big area, but they, they come in. Uh, what happens? It's, 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 so to your point, they came in after the initial invasion of Leyte. Uh, General MacArthur, who was in command of the campaign to retake the Philippines, marking his famous I shall return pledge that he made to the Philippine people. That started on Leyte in October 1944. The 11th Airborne was initially landed administratively on the island. They weren't necessarily expected to participate in combat um, right off the bat there when they landed. But the campaign was going slower than MacArthur anticipated. They were suffering heavier casualties than they had expected. And so the 11th Airborne was tapped to kind of move up into the central mountain range of the island. Uh, Leyte is characterized by this very rugged, central mountain range that kind of favors the west side of the island. Um, Japanese were landing um, reinforcements on the west side of the island by the thousands. Some of those troops were coming up and infiltrating down into the American lines through those mountains. And so uh, General Swing in the 11th Airborne was tasked with moving up 
and blocking those uh, those trails that the Japanese were using to to come across the island. Um, it had been raining for several weeks by the time the 11th was committed to combat. So when you think of these trails in the jungle, you know, think of like ankle, calf deep mud. Um, there were no roads, so everything that they needed by way of supplies initially had to be carried up on their backs. Um, the steepness of the terrain was characterized by one trooper who recalled standing on the side of the mountain and being able to put his hand straight out and being able to touch the, the mountainside just to give you an idea of how, how steep it was. So it was very um, arduous conditions in which they were initially committed to combat. Now, at this point in the war, end of 1944, the Japanese leadership knows the Americans have the momentum, uh, but you, you lay out the idea that they believed a, a strong Japanese stand, maybe if not a victory at Leyte, but what would prove to be a very costly victory for the Americans, might allow for an end to the war that wouldn't require unconditional surrender. But there might be terms that would, would preserve, uh, preserve the, Japanese, the Japanese leadership. Any sense that U.S. leaders believe the same thing? That we've got to do this fast. We, 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 we've got to speed it up. We, we need fast victories. Yeah, so I think to your point, the Japanese certainly at this point, I think I would characterize it as, you know, they knew they probably weren't going to win the war. So their goal became one of not losing the war. And I don't know how much of that strategy was actually known to senior allied leaders. They certainly had, you know, uh, cracked several Japanese codes and had their own intelligence efforts to realize that. Where that manifested itself, though, this this final victory or this this decisive victory is the Japanese uh, termed it at the time was this concept that um, every Japanese soldier on a specific island that had been designated the site for one of these decisive victories was required to give his life in the service of that victory. Ideally, would kill anywhere from seven to twelve Americans in the process. And there were, you know, documents that have been reviewed since then that kind of communicate this internally amongst the Japanese soldiers and the and, and the army. Um, and, and that manifested itself in a number of places, right? On Leyte, again, you see it on Luzon. I think one of the best examples of, of how aggressive it got was on the island of Iwo Jima, which was another one of these Japanese decisive victories. The idea that if we bleed the Americans badly enough that we could at least come to um, the peace table on equal terms. Of course, uh, President Roosevelt had, had made the announcement around unconditional surrender prior to that which kind of set the stage for some of these uh, some of these concerns by the Japanese and what 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 um, unconditional surrender would ultimately mean for for the homeland. Uh, you've got you've got Japanese soldiers. You also, as you put it, rain, mud, the vegetation. You, you've got the heat, the humidity, bugs, right? Uh, disease uh, hitting hitting people, fevers. Uh, it, it's. In your descriptions of battles, very often uh, you, you've got the wounded, but, but also they're fighting, they're sick, right? There, is, is, it, is it pronounced dengue fever? I think that's right, yeah. Uh, you, you, you think to yourself, my goodness, how do they keep going <laughs> through, uh, through, through, through all of this? And the leadership is certainly pushing very hard, right? MacArthur, MacArthur wants wants victory and he wants headlines too, doesn't he? 
Yeah, that's right. I think MacArthur was certainly an aggressive uh, ground commander. I mean, I think to his, and he's he's kind of a divisive character in history, and there's certainly, you know, points to be made uh, for and against his his command and leadership style. But I think you know what he was very good at was, um, you know, he used to say, "Let's let's hit them where they ain't." Kind of was was the quote back in the day, right? And this idea was that he was very much against. Uh, frontal assaults, if you will. And I think he found in General Swing, commander of the 11th Airborne Division, a like-minded approach to fighting the war. And these guys were fans of, uh, you know, firepower, meaning that, you know, in the American tradition of using steel instead of spilling blood. Um, several days during the campaign, the 11th Airborne Division fired over, you know, a thousand artillery shells a day in their campaign to kind of punch their way through the Japanese defenses. Um, and, you know, and part of that, of course, to your point, was the human experience of war, which meant that, you know, you had uh, guys with dengue fever, suffering malaria, dysentery. You know, I think I tell the book in the story of the book when the guys um, jumped into uh, Luzon Island, which was the next major part of the campaign. Several of them were in the field hospital with with dysentery and they went AWOL from the hospital in order to participate in the jump and um, you know so many of them were going into that second phase of the campaign suffering the disease and the conditions from their first experience on Leyte. Uh, how many interviews did you do for the book? Well, I, want, I want people to know you talked to a lot of these people directly. How, how many roughly? Were they eager to talk? What was their mood? How clear were their memories? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think, you know, I think it's, it's one, it's a sad fact that we're losing World War II veterans on a daily basis. And so the opportunity to get to speak and visit with um, these veterans is, is becoming more and more difficult, sadly. Um, I was fortunate to, to ch- talk with several of them. Um, and to your point, it, it varied wildly. You know, some of them were very open to uh, sharing their experiences. Some of them were a little bit more reticent to kind of go into details and they preferred to share some of the funnier stories that happened during training or or after the war things like that Um, some of the guys were clearly reliving stories that they had told at reunions for for a long time that had kind of gained traction and you know some of those stories are hard to track down as far as where and when they occurred in the campaign so as a historian you know you get a lot of great stories but if you can't really anchor it into a specific event, you know, you can't just comfortably plop it down in the middle of a chapter where, you know, you, you've got to, you, it's got to have historical context as to where it happened. But yeah. one of the things that I was really fortunate to have was the support of several of the veterans' families who um, supplied me with their father's or their grandfather's diaries and letters home. Um, and in some cases, I was very fortunate in that the veterans had written uh, personal memoirs, unpublished memoirs um, of their experiences during the war, and those were uh, invaluable resources for for, for telling their story. Uh, the 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 stories contain a lot of details that that are that are hard for us to imagine, right? What it was like, even even down to cases of cannibalism that that became clear, and the the condition of. Uh, the Japanese, the Japanese soldiers. We'll get to what the Japanese did to the native population in in a moment. But there was one interesting thing when when the the Americans would would overcome uh, in an invasion when they would finally the resistance didn't end. What would happen is you'd have we call them cleanup operations, which sound 
so low hazard. But what you point out is, no, no, these could be more dangerous than actual battles. How was that the case? Yeah, it's, it's a great observation. And so, yeah, these, these mopping up operations was this idea that after you had, had subdued the main elements of, of resistance or the main offensive capability of the Japanese, you still had to go in and deal with these areas that you had swept past or overlooked or, um, you know, guys had withdrawn and set up a kind of final line of resistance. And, you know, this kind of goes back to that decisive victory, right? The Japanese soldiers in World War II were heavily um, imbued with this sense of taking as many Americans with them as possible. And so on these 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 mopping up operations, what that meant was is you were dealing with um, unorganized um, and therefore unpredictable groups of Japanese soldiers, sometimes down to the individual soldier. Um, so where you're looking, you know, so where senior leaders are looking at a map and, and recognizing that a large an area has largely been secured, you still have squads that are going in and trying to, uh, you know, winkle out these guys from their the holdout positions, which is extremely dangerous because when you're dealing with an enemy that doesn't care if he dies in the process, um, his only goal is to take as many of you with him as possible. It becomes a very dicey proposition in those circumstances. And you could see, you know, uh, Japanese soldiers pretending to be dead, you know, waiting for the last second to throw a final hand grenade. Um, you know, and it got to the point to where it was so, you know, no holds barred, so to speak, that when the division started offering up rewards to those those units, those squads that could actually capture a Japanese prisoner. Um, just to give you an idea of the tenacity of how adamant the Japanese were not to be captured alive, there was one incident where three Japanese soldiers on one of these mop-up patrols charged towards uh, the squad. The Americans had shot and killed two of the advancing Japanese. The third one they had shot in the leg um, you know, and then went in an attempt to capture a live prisoner. And as they got close to that, uh, that guy they were hoping to take prisoner, he stabbed himself um, in the throat with his own bayonet rather than be captured by the Americans. And so, um, you know, a very gruesome story. But I think, you know, one of the things that one of the reasons I wrote the book was to kind of help make these incomprehensible things um, as comprehensible and contextually understandable as possible, because it was a very gruesome campaign. We sort of have two levels operating. The, the grunts uh, on the ground who don't really know what the big strategies are, right? They're, they're not even sure. Everything's immediate, right, uh, around them. And then you got the generals, MacArthur and his, and his generals, and some of that is playing politics. Uh, MacArthur sends news of great victory, back to the papers in the States. No, that hasn't happened yet. You were, we're not close to that. Do, did, the, did the grunts have an idea of, you know, what, what, what upper command? Or was it just, who knows what the hell those guys are doing? We, we just, we're, we're just out here again. Uh, we, we, we got this pillbox uh, 100 yards away from us. Was that the perspective? Yeah, it's a little bit of both, Mark. I think to your point, you know, in the specific example of the battle from Manila, which was this very dense urban combat that was going on as part of the, the liberation of Luzon, it became a horrific battle um, with the civilian population of almost a million people kind of caught up in that. MacArthur did prematurely announce that they had secured and liberated Manila. That was one of his personal goals. He had lived in Manila prior to the war started. He had a deep personal interest in 
the Philippines and the Filipino people. But to your point that, you know, that kind of that premature announcement uh, trying to get those accolades in the press did have a demoralizing effect on the troops. You can imagine if you're a, a frontline trooper, you happen to get your hands on an issue of stars and stripes that tells you that the battle that you're in the middle of and that your buddies are getting killed in is already over. And you know that that's far from the truth. I think it took another three, four weeks of fighting in the city um, after the announcement was made that the battle was over before Manila was actually um, secured to devastating results. And so I think you had a combination, right? You had guys who uh, blew it off and focused on the pillbox in front of them and continued to fight, you know, block by block, brick by brick to, to retake Manila. And then you had that that negative impact on morale, which I think kind of, you know, illustrated to the guys on the ground how out of touch senior commanders could be. So we moved to Manila. The lady is, is secured. And again, the momentum is with the Americans. Now, MacArthur, you know, believed that as the Americans moved relentlessly toward Manila, the Japanese withdraw just as MacArthur had done a few years before. Uh, what, what really happened and why did the Japanese not withdraw. Yeah, so to your point, MacArthur had, and his staff had hoped that the Japanese would declare Manila an open city, similar to kind of what we saw the Germans do in Paris, right? They withdrew from that dense urban area. They knew that it would become a bloodbath fighting in that area, that, that the city would be devastated. Well, the Japanese um, in Manila did not withdraw, unfortunately. They decided to barricade um, themselves in the city. And when we think about Manila, you know, it's important, I think, to remember that before the war, it was called the Pearl of the Orient. It, was, it is the capital city of the Philippines. As I mentioned, it had um, almost a million citizens living in it. And I think the government buildings, you know, we can imagine uh, were very similar to the buildings we see in D.C. today, right? These large marble, white columned buildings. So it was very much um, a splendid capital. Um, and there was some, you know, there's still debate to this day exactly what happened. The Japanese army had a rivalry with the Japanese navy. They weren't necessarily working nearly as well in, in tandem or concert as the allies were. Um, the, the Japanese commander later claimed, uh, the army commander later claimed that he had ordered a withdrawal, but the Japanese navy ignored that. Um, you know, populating the city with thousands of, of, of sailors and their equivalent of, of the Marines. They barricaded themselves um, in the city, and it took um, over a month of devastating urban combat to, to, to secure them. Because again, you know, in an urban environment, you have these Japanese defenders. They're unwilling to give up. They're unwilling to quit. You, you, you have an, a remarkable episode where the, the Americans enter a hospital that the Japanese were using to treat their own wounded. And when they entered the hospital, there are a lot of Japanese wounded patients in those hospital beds, and they're dead. Why? Yeah, so, um, you know, the Japanese, I think it has to be said, and, you know, his, the historical context backs this up in, 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 in clear black and white, but, you know, there were... There were thousands of, of, of atrocities going on in the city of Manila, both um, the Japanese amongst their own troops, to your point. Um, they did not want those wounded troops to fall into American hands. And so many of them uh, were slaughtered in their, in their hospital beds by their own troops. And then, of course, uh, atrocities against the Filipinos 
um, in the city of Manila and frankly across the rest of the island as well, but it's most dramatically, uh, sadly, illustrated in the atrocities that tragically unfolded in the city of Manila, which started out as, as reprisals against Filipino guerrillas and quickly uh, spread from there in, in this, you know, uh, horrific bloodbath of, against men, women, and children. There's much more, so much more in the book to, to cover as, as Manila is liberated for now. It is Angels Against the Sun, a World War II saga of grunts, grit, and brotherhood. Uh, James M. Fenelon, Sergeant Fenelon, uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate the opportunity. 